tonight's going to be more like community group. So I don't have a long, lengthy sermon, yay, but um, I, we will be going uh, through uh, the next uh, little section here in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. Um, welcome tonight, and uh, if you're out there in live stream world, you want to pray for me? Nobody, nobody, I could pray. No, you can't pray for yourself. I can't pray for myself? God help me. <laughs> Got stage fright. Dear Jesus, I thank you so much that we can come together. We can open your word. We can talk and worship and we can ask questions and we can respond. Pray that we would indeed uh, let your spirit speak through your word to our hearts that we would not be the same, but we would be more conformed to Christ as we listen and interact with your truths. We thank you so much for your grace and mercy in your name. Amen. Thank you, Justin and Logan. <laughs> um, we're going to talk tonight, uh, the three chapters that we're going to be in. It's actually book four, chapters four, five, and six. Is that any better? It seems like the connection here. Okay, thank you. Okay, good. A little less scratchy. Okay, so uh, tonight we've got three, uh, three chapters in book four. Uh, one's called The Good Infection. That's the first chapter we're going to be in. The second is called The Obstinate Toy Soldiers. And the third is uh, Two Notes. So without further ado, we're going to dive right in. A Good Infection. C.S. Lewis uh, starts that chapter by talking about the Trinity. And he actually has an illustration of two books. He wants us to imagine two books that have always existed. The top book supported by the bottom book. Now, in our common sense mind, we would think that the first thing that would have had to have happened was the first book would have had to have been on the table. So that the second book could be placed on top of it. But he wants us to imagine that these two books never had a beginning and were always in existence. Therefore, the f- top book is supported by the bottom book, yet the bottom book didn't create the first book. He uses this as an illustration to explain the dance between the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Last week we talked in uh, community groups about the Holy Spirit the Father and the Son, we talked about, and we had some questions about the Trinity. So I'm not going to um, dive very deeply into that doctrine, the doctrine of pneumatology. But I did want to say this, that in the scripture, it is desc- God is described as a God who has three persons, three personalities, if you will, three distinct parts, yet is one and is equal among the parts. We see that in Matthew three sixteen to 17, Flip, I think you can call that one up. We'll read through that one. In Matthew three sixteen and 17, as you, as you may recall in previous teachings, this is Jesus when he was baptized. And we actually see three, the three parts of the triune God in this, uh, in this passage. And when Jesus was baptized, he immediately went up from there 
uh, from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You see the Father speaking, you see the Spirit descending, and you see Jesus coming out of the water. Three parts, yet equal. I wanted to mention also um, that C.S. Lewis mentions that, um, and you probably have heard this, that God is love. He has a brief discussion about God is love. And what do we mean when we really say God is love? Have you ever heard anybody say that? When you said, if you could describe to me in a few words, what is God? They would say God is love. Has anybody ever said that to you? Yeah? No? Yeah? No? Okay, good. All right. Good. Eh, great. All right. Good. Um, this is the weirdest thing. This is the weirdest thing, not having everybody, all the whole family here tonight. It is. I'm looking around, and it's like, it's like community group at church. And it's weird for me. But I'm going to try to muddle through it. No, no, it's weird. It's weird. Well, that's not to say you're not weird, but I'm just not calling you weird. <laughs> I'll let Dave decide that. <laughs> um, God is love. And, he, and C.S. Lewis mentions that, you know, if you think about it, in order to, uh, love takes at least two, right? I love pizza, you, me, and a pizza, right? Um, you know, a man and a woman love each other. It takes two. So when we say God is love, we actually need to know that we are acknowledging that God is more than one person. God is a plurality. And we see scripture teach that very early in the scriptures, in the Genesis account, in Genesis 1.26. Um, in fact, we could go there. Genesis 1.26. This is the account where God actually is, is contemplating and telling us in the narrative um, how, what's going on in his mind. It says, verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the flesh of the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. But look at the beginning of that. Look at the pronouns that God is using. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is the first inkling that we see in Scripture that the Old Testament actually um, looks at God as a community, as more than one yet being one. Well, um, some scholars say that the first few chapters of Genesis are mere poetry. But we also see this used in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3.20, we also read, you get there, Genesis 3.20 says, says this. Nope, I didn't get that right. There you go. In, in Genesis 3.22, Flip, can you go down two verses? Genesis 3.22, is that possible? I'm sorry. Typo. Genesis 3.22 says this. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
in this verse, this is not a poetic verse. This is actually a historical account of the Garden of Eden. And we see the same pronoun used. Behold, the man has become like one of us. If it was singular, it would have said, Behold, look, man has become like me. All right. Further, if you don't believe me, Genesis 11.7 says this. It says, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. What's that, what's that context for that verse? Does anybody know? Tower of Babel, right. There you go. And here we go. Look at this. Come, let us go down. There's the plurality again. This is just an example of how we would defend the fact that God is a triune God. In the Old Testament, we see plurality. We don't see the Spirit or the Son mentioned there, but we definitely see plurality. I want to show you another verse in the New Testament. This is, this is Ephesians, one of my favorite books of all time. My wife will attest to that. Chapter 1, I want to read a fairly lengthy passage uh, because I want you to see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and how Paul describes them in a deep theological discussion in Ephesians 1. Let me read for you Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pause there. How many persons of the triune God are in that phrase? Two. The Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's two of them already. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. You can see the interplay between the Father and the Son. Look at the pronouns. Look who's being talked about as we navigate through this. In whom we have redemption, verse 7, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who, are, who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised, and here's the third person, Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. That's a lengthy passage. There is a lot of deep things in there. Predestination pops up. The counsel of his will is a phrase that is used, meaning that God actually thought about his plans. He didn't think alone. He thought of it as a trinity. These are just some things that I, the verses that I throw out to you as passages that you can kind of grapple with and look at and kind of understand that behind the doctrine of the trinity is both Old Testament depth and New Testament theology. 
Turn with me to Romans 7. C.S. Lewis also talks about this interplay of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he uses the term a dance. And if you think of a dance, the choreography, the footwork, the body positions of twirling and spinning and moving together, two as one entity on the dance floor. It's actually an apropos um, picture for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Romans 7, um, I want you to see that this interplay is something that is beyond us and something that we need to understand. Yet it's something that is hard for us to comprehend. Romans 7, Paul writes to the Roman church. We're going to be in verses 15 through 25. Romans seven fifteen. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not know what I want. For I do not do what I want, excuse me, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see my members, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh. I, deserve, I serve the law of sin. And why did I put that verse in here? Joining the dance and joining an understanding that God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is something that we need to understand does not come from within us. We do need the Spirit to speak to us. We do need to understand who Jesus Christ is and his redemptive work. And we do need to understand the work of the Father, So when we read this, we read that we are juxtaposed against understanding God. And we need him to allow us to enter the dance, so to speak. In Acts 4, verse 12. Let me get there for you. In Acts 4, verse 12, says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, by which we must be saved. Again, joining the dance is solitary through the work of Jesus Christ. So the, so the triune God, God is love. Both of these are speaking to God as community. For us to understand that, we need revelation from God. We need understanding from him to join that dance, so to speak. By the way, I'm not covering everything in the book, so if you read the book, there's things I'm just leaving out, okay? You can open for discussion if you'd like. This is not comprehensive. In Book 4, Chapter 5, it's 
titled The Obstinate Toy Soldier, and I'm not going to do this chapter justice either. In this chapter, we, we see the imagery of God bringing to life a toy tin soldier. And that's probably a wild imagination. The only thing I can liken it to is when I taught one time in youth group. I wanted to teach how we were dead to sin, yet alive in Christ. And to, to teach what something that is dead looks like coming to life, I had a, a bowl with a goldfish in it swimming around, and we named it Ish, Ish the fish. Okay? So there was Ish the fish, alive and well, in his little bowl. What I had was one of the students come up, and I opened a can of sardines, and I had him pick up a sardine and put it in another bowl, and I asked that student to make that fish come alive. It was in water, just like Ish was. It had everything it needed, except it was not alive. Just to illustrate the point that to take something dead, something inanimate, something like a tin soldier, and make it come alive, to have flesh, to have a heart, to have a brain, to have the organs that need to, need to function um, to, to make the body work. That's the imagery that we see um, in this chapter. Now imagine that you were able to, and you had the power to bring a tin soldier or a sardine in a can back to life. What kind of power would you have? That's pretty awesome. But imagine if the tin soldier rebelled against you and said, I don't want to be alive. That's the state that we are in against God who breathes life into us. Topics in this chapter include dead things brought to life. Um, But more importantly, what I wanted to um, impress upon you is that being alive in Christ is something that we are not capable of. It is beyond us. We just read that there is salvation in no other name, which puts the onus of salvation on the person of Jesus Christ and not on ourselves. We can't do anything for it. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but just by means of encouragement, as we move forth into the town of Glassboro with move-in day, with movie nights, with Rowan Vendor Day, all of these things, I want us to remember we don't do it because of Missio Day. We do it because of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ needs to invade us, to breathe life into us. It is beyond us. You know, we could never, we could never attain to salvation. We could never become holy enough. And that's part of the purpose of this chapter, the obstinate toy soldiers, is to introduce us to a gospel of Jesus Christ that makes it clear we need something beyond ourselves. We never could attain. But thanks be to God, the person, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who became flesh, he already did this for us. And we're almost done. We're almost to chapter 6. And then we're going to have some questions. Chapter 6 is, uh, I wanted to camp here just a little bit. Um, there's Up on the screen, there's actually two things going on right here. Um, this, in, in the chapter, two notes. C.S. Lewis devotes um, a little bit of the first issue, the first note, so to speak, to the idea if God um, wanted more, he talks about us being sons of God, becoming sons of God. In other words, upon salvation, we become part of the family of God as his children. But he makes a distinction that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is different. Someone had asked him, 
um, well, why didn't God just make many sons of God? In other words, why did Jesus? Why did God make just one? So he had a little discussion about that. I'm not going to camp on that. I want to camp on the second note because I think it's relevant and pertinent, pertinent to us as modern-day Western culture American Christians. The two things depicted there are a circle of people, stick people, holding hands, and one orange guy as an individual. The two things I wanted to talk about that C.S. Lewis mentions, one is individualism and the other is totalitarianism which is not easy to say, and I've been practicing it for days. Individualism and, ch- and the church. Individualism in American Christian culture. I want, to under- I want us to understand that we as American Christians come at Christianity very, very differently than most other cultures do, and it's simply because we have a fierce sense of independence. And how I've seen that independence played out is I've seen it played out that we individually take the burden on for being the church, which means we become more important than the whole. We have the value of the church walking with us. Therefore, we determine what the church should be like. There's a lot of individualism in that that the scriptures really don't speak into. Individualism in the church means that I am more important than anyone else at church. And while this is arrogant, it's absolutely true. It's true of me. When I think of my position and I think of the experiences God has given to me, I can easily become an individual um, person and think that my ministry is better than someone else's. I've seen it happen. And we carry that that attitude around with us far too often. The second thing is totalitarianism. That's just the opposite of individualism. That's, that's meaning that everyone in the church, everyone is equal. You're equal with me. Well, of course we're equal. All right, doesn't the Bill of Rights kind of tell us that? That we have equal rights? All right? But in the church, totalitarianism means that no one is special. All are equal. No one rises above. No one grows beyond another. All are equal. And that's not an accurate picture either, because what that does is it robs us of the special gifts that God has given to you to serve in his community. And the third point in this to prove this, that this is the New Testament um, way that uh, we need to look at how we function. We are not individuals, yet we are individually responsible to acknowledge God as Lord and Savior. But when it comes to serving in the church, when it comes to interactions, we are by no means called to be individualistic for the kingdom of God. There are not 300 million individual churches walking around the earth, each in a human body. There is one universal church, and there are local expressions of that. I want to just briefly discuss in, Acts, in, excuse me, in Romans chapter 12 how this plays out, how we are individuals, yet we are special. How we can individually be responsible for salvation, but how we collectively function as a church in the kingdom of God. This uh, lends itself to discussion of spiritual giftedness. And you can find these 
discussions in Romans 12, in 1 Corinthians 12, in Ephesians 4, and in 1 Peter 4. But I'm just going to use um, Romans chapter 12 tonight. And I'm going to read from verses 3 through 8. And we're almost done. Romans 12, 3 through 8 says this. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And I'll throw in verse 9, it says, let love be genuine. We see that the spiritual gifts, or God gifts each member, and how it works is this. Your right hand is more or less important than your left hand. Well, you may write with your right hand. You may play ping pong with your right hand and not your left, right? You may lead a jab with your right hand and not your left, all right? But try to pick up a big cinder block with just your right hand. Your left hand is important even though it functions differently. What's more important, your right hand or your big toe on your left foot? I don't know. Could you live without your big toe on your left foot? Could you live without your right hand? Life would be harder, wouldn't it? And that's the point. Paul is saying that we are made up, our bodies are complex, and you can't just start saying one thing's better than another, and you just can't start saying, I'm going to sacrifice this for that. So we see individually we're important to God, and we're important because we collectively make up his kingdom and serve in it. That's it for tonight. That's these three little chapters. The Trinity in the first chapter, the infection of the gospel, or, or good infection rather. The obstinate tin soldiers of dead things coming to life, and we can't do it. It's the person of Jesus Christ that can do that. And individualism and totalitarianism. Okay, that concludes my sermonette tonight. I think that is a record, okay? But what I wanted to do now was open up for some questions. How do these topics apply to your daily life? How do these, pro- these topics, the triune God, being dead and brought back to life through the power of Christ, spiritually, spiritually dead, becoming spiritually alive through Jesus Christ, and how do uh, the discussions or topics of you being an individual Christian versus you being a blended Christian with nothing special, How do these enter into your daily life? Anybody thought about them this week? At all? This past week? Triune God? Are you sacrificing Jameson back to you? Listen up, Jameson.